Last Lord's Day, we looked at verses 11 through 17, and I want to briefly recap the three points that we used just to resituate the, the, the context in your minds. We noted first the occasion for Paul's appeal to unity. We talked about unity for a long time, and we spent one week considering uh, the occasion. Why did Paul address unity? Why was that a, a topic that needed to be addressed in Corinth? We saw the occasion was this report that had come from Chloe's people to the effect that there was quarreling in the church in Corinth about favorite teachers. And people had gathered themselves into these factions based on who they uh, felt was the best or their favorite of these various teachers. The Corinthians in that sense had sort of, uh, we might say, regressed into the ways of their culture. Remember what we said at the beginning that the Corinthian, the, the Greco-Roman culture was a, a culture that was very much like our culture. It was just a, a wicked and sinful culture where everyone was striving to be the greatest, to advance, to get higher and higher, even if that meant trampling over those who were close to them. Just like our world today, nothing's changed. They had been saved out of that culture and yet they had brought some of that thinking with them into the church and so they had grabbed their favorite teachers and they were using that, the, these men, as a means to elevate themselves over one another. Then we noticed the arbitrary nature of this occasion. It was groundless. For a Christian, this type of disputing, this type of gathering into factions doesn't make any sense. And Paul points that out to them with these questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He takes them straight back to Christ, their Savior, and says, there's only one Christ, so there's no need to divide. There's only one who has shed His blood for your souls, that is Jesus Christ, there's no need to gather into factions about teachers. And there's only one name into whom you have been baptized, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. The, he is your only Lord. You, you never uh, guaranteed or, or pledged your uh, unwavering allegiance to any man. It was only to Christ. So this type of dividing up uh, according to, to your favorite teachers... It's not justified. This doesn't make any sense. It's groundless, or the word I used was arbitrary. But then we noted how Paul then goes in to describe his ministry as the very opposite of arbitrary. What they were doing was senseless, and it had no foundation, no ground. The flip side of that is his ministry was built on a very intentional and purposeful foundation. Paul saw himself as a steward of Jesus Christ sent on a mission from Jesus Christ to do with, with very particular intention that which Christ gave him to do and really no more. If he had occasion to do more, he would do it from here, or here and there like baptizing. That wasn't outside of bounds, but really to Paul it was almost like a small thing to him because he says, I wasn't sent to baptize, I was sent to preach. Paul sort of is an example to us here of what uh, uh, we should be as Christ followers, devoted as stewards to what Christ has given us to do. And, and content to say, and that's all I'm going to do. And if you want more than that, you're going to have to find somebody else 
because Christ has not sent me to do this thing or that thing. That, that's kind of the idea here. Now, I pointed out that all of, all of that material was, in my thinking, really transitionary. Paul, Paul was, is, is getting to what is going to be his main point in, in beginning in verse 17 and going through uh, in, into the next couple chapters. And he makes that shift, or he begins to make that shift at the end of verse 17. Look at it again. In these words, Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And it's right there that I want to sort of rest for a few weeks, even though we're going we're to be looking at some of the other things that he says here. But I really just want to consider... What Paul has in mind, I think a lot of times when we read this section of Scripture, as we do with many sections of Scripture, we, we don't really understand what Paul's trying to do when he brings in theological concepts. We, we will very often read concepts into it that we like and that are, that are there maybe by extension, but we don't stop to think, well, what is Paul actually trying to do when he brings up these these issues, and particularly here, the concept of the cross. So what I want to do, I've organized the material for today under three headings. And, and you'll see as we go along how, how this all works out. Number one is the power of the cross. Number two is the purpose of the cross. And number three is the presentation of the cross. And there's going to be more to come on, on this particular. I think about three weeks just on this before we move any, any further. But those will be our three points today. The power of the cross, the purpose of the cross, and the presentation of the cross. So number one, the, the power of the cross. And here, I want to draw your attention to the language, the, the phraseology, and what seems to be really the idea behind the language. To summarize verse 17, Paul was essentially saying, as a steward of Christ... I can only do what Christ has commissioned me to do and, this is important, I can only do it in the way that He's commissioned me to do it. I've been sent to preach. But Christ didn't say, preach any old way you want to. Preach, but He says, not with words of eloquent wisdom. I can't preach that way. There's a way that I have to preach and His reasoning is, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Or literally, lest the cross of Christ be emptied. The King James says, made of none effect. And the NAS says, made void. Charles Hodge gives sort of an interpretive definition of the idea here in these words, rendered powerless and inoperative. In other words, Paul says in verse 17, As a steward of Christ, I can only do what Christ has commissioned me to do, and I can only do it in the way that He has commanded me to do it, lest the cross of Christ be rendered powerless and inoperative, or emptied of its power, emptied of its effect. That's what he's saying. Now, what is Paul's underlying assumption when he says this? He is assuming something 
that he has not yet stated. He's going to go on to state it, but I want to make sure that we understand how he goes about it. He is assuming that the cross of Christ has power. He's assuming that it has an effect. He's assuming that it has an operation to perform, we could say. And so we could say from this verse, at the most basic level, the cross has power. Or we see from this text that there is such a thing as the power of the cross. And Paul's ministry is built, I believe, right on top of this very important theological principle that I'm just going to call the power of the cross. I'll I'll open it up and explain what's happening here. But I'm going to use that phrase, the power of the cross, to mean something probably more broad than what maybe you have in mind. Now the word power, again, it's not not in verse 17. The, The word that's power that's placed there is, some would argue, is sort of is borrowed from verse 18 where Paul begins to explain himself. Verse 18 begins with the word for, and that word for means the reason that I'm saying that, or here's what, I'm, here's what I mean, here's what I'm getting at. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of of God. Now notice he says, it is the power of God. And when you read that, you should ask, well, what is it? A phrase such as the power of God, hopefully you understand or, or believe that that would be significant to us. So what is it? What is this thing that is the power of God? Well, in this verse, it's the word of the cross, the message of the cross or the preaching of the cross. And in these verses, in this section, Paul has particularly in mind the ministry of preaching the message of the cross. And there are different phrases that that are all, I would say, synonymous. In verse 17a, or the middle of verse 17, we have this phrase, preach the gospel. That sort of establishes what he's, what he's talking about. He says it from the outset. Preach the gospel. But then at the end of the verse, he just uses the phrase, the cross of Christ. And that could mean several different things, uh, perhaps. But then right in verse 18, he goes right back into the word of the cross or the message of the cross, which is the power of God. And then towards the end of this section in verse 23, he concludes by saying, we preach Christ crucified. Or we preach Christ undergoing the suffering of the cross. That's Christ crucified. So you see this theme, the gospel, the cross, which we we understand would be uh, the very centerpiece of the gospel, is the cross of Christ. Then we have the word of the cross, which is the power of God, the, the, the message of Christ crucified, which is the preached gospel. And then we preach Christ crucified. We preach that gospel that is about the man Christ Jesus who was crucified on a cross. All of that that he's saying is really about the preaching of the cross, or the preaching of the gospel. And we will come back to that emphasis here, which is the preaching of the gospel. 
I, I do want to point that out. That is the emphasis. We're going to take a long way around to come back to that as its emphasis. But for now, I want to tie the, the preaching of the gospel as an act, evangelism, if you will, or, or the, the Christian ministry as, as a gospel ministry, and, and just the cross itself alone. I want to put it all together into this one subject that I'm just going to call the cross, and in particularly, the cross as it has power. This, there, there's this, we would say, a biblical idea, a concept that carries with it many different things. We're just going to call it the cross. And the cross has power. There's something behind the cross. There is such a thing as the power of the cross. The next question is obviously, well, what is the power of the cross? What, what do we mean when we say the power of the cross? What is the efficiency behind this whole idea of the cross? What is its operative force? How are we to understand this notion of the power of the cross, which Paul is clearly assuming? How are we supposed to understand it? Well, every power can be identified using three words that begin with the letter A. The actor, the activity, and the accomplishment. The actor. What is the source of this power? Who's doing the acting? Then the activity. What is this power being used for? And then the accomplishment. What does it accomplish in the end? What's the final thing that is that is produced by this so-called power. Now, if we look in these verses, we can name the actor by just reading this section and seeing or, or asking the question, who is doing everything in these verses? Verse 19, we have a quote from Isaiah, which, is, which are the words in the mouth of God, I will destroy, I will thwart. Verse 20 in the form of a question, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Or to put it in the form of an assertion, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. In verse 21, we have a reference to uh, those being saved. Well, who saves? It's God alone who saves. And there are other, other things we could point out here. I, I just give you those three to show you. The actor in these verses, though Paul is talking about the preaching of the gospel... The actor is not the preacher. The actor is God. God's doing something. That's the actor. Now, what's the activity? What is God doing? Again, verse 18, He's, he's saving to us who are being saved. Again, only God saves. God is saving people. But again, verse 19, He's destroying wisdom. He's thwarting discernment. In verse 21, again, He's saving those who believe. So what activity is coming along with this power? God is saving sinners. But He's also overthrowing or, or uh, yeah, overthrowing wisdom, particularly the wisdom of men. And all this action, what is God accomplishing? Well, we've already seen He's saving the lost, but in, in the verbiage here, if we're asking what, has, what does Paul have in mind that has been accomplished, once and for all accomplished in this or by this power of the cross? And we see that kind of language in verse 20. God has made foolish 
the wisdom of the world. So what is the power of the cross? Well, the power of the cross, according to Paul, is the activity of God. God is doing something. We could say, most simply, the power of the cross is the power of God. It is God doing something. And we see that in, in sort of the bookends, verse 18, it is the power of God. Verse 24, Christ, the power of God. The power of the cross is just the power of God. It's God doing something. The power behind the cross is God. But I want to say it now and I'll prove it in the next point. The power of the cross is God doing something that only God can do in a way that only God can do it. It's God saving sinners. We, we often think of that's usually where our minds immediately go. It is God saving sinners. But it's also God eviscerating human wisdom. To eviscerate means to remove the entrails. Render it lifeless and dead. Dig its guts out. God saving sinners and eviscerating human wisdom through the suffering of the man Christ Jesus on a Roman cross. That's, that's the power here. The power of the cross. Point number two, the purpose of the cross. And here I want to go further and just prove to you from Paul's words that what I just said is accurate. But now the question is specifically, what was God doing at the cross? What was God doing at the cross? Now the first thing that often comes to our mind are what I would call the immediate and salvific acts. Immediate and salvific. We typically think of these, but I bet I've got one that is probably not the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the immediate acts of the cross. And that is first, judgment. Judgment. Among the immediate acts of God on the cross is the act of judgment. On the cross of Christ, the sins of God's elect received their judgment. They received their penalty. We could say they received their hell on the cross. There will be a, a judgment day for the saints, but we have this great comfort. Our sins have already been judged. The, that judgment already took place. They've already been condemned. Our sins which rendered us obnoxious to God's justice were condemned and punished in the body of Christ as He hung on the cross. At a moment in time, that took place. So the cross was an act of judgment. At the cross, God was executing judgment. Now, almost not immediately, but sort of the, the direct fruit of that is our salvation. Because our sins received their due penalty in the body of Christ well, then the work of our salvation can now go through with its accomplishment. Sin is what separates us from God. Our sin is what needs to be condemned and punished by God. Well, that's what God did on the cross. Therefore, that which separated us from God is gone. And reconciliation is now one. Full atonement has been made. We can be brought near to God through faith. 
So as for the immediate and saving acts of God on the cross, there's judgment and there's also salvation. Or we could say salvation through judgment. Because God judged our sins, we can be saved and are saved. But we have to also keep in mind, I, I say all that because it's true. I don't think that, that's what Paul's talking about here. We have to also keep in mind that God accomplished more in the cross of Christ than just our personal or individual salvation. There are more what I would call ultimate and cosmic things happening at the cross. God was also glorifying Himself by rendering the death blow to all the powers of hell and the devil and completely overthrowing all of the wisdom of men. I think that's what Paul has in mind here. Christ said of His crucifixion in John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. In Colossians 2, 15, Paul says that He, that's God, disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in... And then however you want to interpret the, the noun there, it's either Him, Christ, or it, the cross. The, the picture is the man Christ Jesus hanging on a Roman cross, people walking by, wagging their heads, scoffing, look, this man must be cursed. In that moment, God was disarming rulers and authorities putting them to open shame. Men, look, this is man's wisdom. Look at that man. He's being openly shamed. God's wisdom says, no, I'm openly shaming all of the powers of hell in this one on the cross. That's what Paul says. So speaking ultimately and cosmically, the cross was an act of judgment. Judgment. And this is especially important because of what Paul's trying to convey to the Corinthians here. The cross, the power of the cross, or God acting in and through the cross of Christ, was not merely personally salvific. He doesn't just say, you Christians got to snap out of it. Didn't Jesus shed His blood for your sins? Now that's true, but that's not what He says. The cross was an act of cosmic judgment. Now notice the text that Paul uses to support his argument in verse 19. Verse 19, he says, for, or again, the reason being, let me explain what I mean, for, and then he says, it is written. So let me explain what I'm getting at using a Bible verse, using a text from Scripture. 1 Corinthians 1.19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He quotes Isaiah 29.14. Turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 29. Now, Paul quoted from verse 14. I want to read verse 13, and you'll recognize it. Verse 13 and 14 of Isaiah 29. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people 
with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Now, verse 13, you recognize, Christ used that verse against the the Pharisees, the hypocrites of His day in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. He says, well, did Isaiah speak of you? This is, you're who Isaiah was talking about. They were hypocrites in Isaiah's day. They were hypocrites in Christ's day. And the verse applies. And verse 14 of Isaiah 29 is God's response to Israel's sin, Israel's hypocrisy. The implication or the, 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 uh, the sum of the matter of this section is, is this. Because they were all mouth and no heart, because they were given over to purely external religious hypocrisy, God promises to act in judgment. This is a judgment passage. And the judgment is going to be causing the wisdom of men to perish and hiding the discernment of men. In other words, the judgment is God's going to come and He's going to render all of their wisdom as nothing. It's foolishness, useless. Now, how's He going to do that? What's the act? Wonderful things. Wonder upon wonder. We would say things that no one could ever imagine, no one could ever dream, things that only God can do. I'm going to do something like that and I'm going to render a judgment on all of your so-called wisdom. Again, the passage from Isaiah is a passage of judgment. Because of their sin, God would act. God would do something so outrageously astonishing that it would render all human wisdom and discernment completely void. That's, what, that's the text Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 1.19. So turn back there. See if this is the way you have typically read it. I don't think that... This is not the way I had considered this before. Usually, coming out of verse 18, our minds fix themselves upon the saving or salvific work of God. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that is true. That's that's Romans 1, 16 and 17. The preaching of the cross, the preaching of the gospel is the power of God to salvation. That's usually where we, we focus our attention. But that's not where Paul goes. Paul says, and if we, if I cut out the part about salvation and go straight into verse 19, it would read like this. The word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing... As God said in Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the, the, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In other words, to the wicked and unbelieving, I'm going to render all of their so-called wisdom as utter folly. So you see the power of the cross or God's activity in the cross of Christ is an act of cosmic judgment. The cross is God doing wonderful things, wonder upon wonder. Something so outrageously astonishing that it renders all human wisdom completely void as if it were a veritable nothing. It's gone. Human wisdom, gone out the door. That's what's happening at the cross. 
And in this, in the cross, God is glorifying Himself because He's taking His wisdom and He's dropping it down on top of all human wisdom so that it effectively disappears. He's magnifying His wisdom. He triumphs over the devil and He triumphs over all of the wisdom of men in one act. He's glorifying Himself. In verse 18, the cross and the preaching of it displays the power of God. In verse 20, it makes foolish the wisdom of the world. Verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. That's the, that's the effect. That's what God is showing in the cross. God displays His own infinite wisdom and power over all of the wisdom and puny efforts of men in the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's very tempting not to go into what's happening in verse 20. Just as a teaser. In verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? That is, that is not Paul saying, um, you know, see if you can find anything better than this. This is God speaking through Paul and effectively pounding his chest in front of all human wisdom. Bring them forward. Where's the scribe? Where's the debater? Where's the philosopher? Where's the wise man? Where are your brains? Where are your smarts? Line them up. I don't, God's saying, I don't see them. I don't see anybody. That, that's the, the, the question is rhetorical. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Look around you. Do you see any wisdom left? That's what he's, what he's doing there. This is God's purpose in the cross as Paul has it in view here. God, through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, was glorifying Himself by rendering a final cosmic death blow to all the powers of hell and triumphing over all of the so-called wisdom of men. That's the power of the cross. It is the efficiency of God accomplishing what only God can accomplish in a way that only God can accomplish it saving sinners and executing judgment upon all the wisdom of men in one fell swoop. G.K. Beale says this, quote, Through the cross, God has turned the world's value systems upside down. Remember last week we talked about what, what Paul was saying when he said, not with words of eloquent wisdom, and I read the quote that said, um, that this was a, 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 a condemnation not of rhetoric per se, anybody that's talking is using rhetoric, but rhetoric as a value system. Because in this culture, remember, the, 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 the level of your rhetoric, rhetoric laid, raised your, your status among men. That was a value system. Can you speak or do you understand the greatest and best of the rhetoricians? Through the cross, God has turned upside down all of those value systems. In the cross of Christ, we see that, and here's another quote, God is one who acts to judge and save His people in ways that defy human imagination. Both the cross as the instrument and Christ as the person suffering on the cross manifest the infinite wisdom of God which confounds all human wisdom. That's the purpose 
of the cross. In Paul's mind, the purpose of God's power in the cross is an execution of judgment on man's wisdom. The Corinthians lived in a culture where man's wisdom was God. Paul says, no, God has already triumphed over that. He's already shown how all of that is nothing. How so? When the Son of God hung on a cross outside of Jerusalem, that's how. That's what he's saying. Point number three, the presentation of the cross. The presentation of the cross. And it's here that I want to zoom out and broaden our understanding of this concept of the power of the cross. I want to consider the power of the cross more as a a principle permeating all of God's acts in redemptive history in addition to the singular act of the crucifixion of Christ. The historical crucifixion, the actual crucifixion of Christ is, we could say, the premier and climactic testimony of the wisdom of God in opposition to man's wisdom. But it's not the only such testimony. There are other acts of God which operate on this same principle that I'm I'm still going to call the power of the cross, even though that might be a little anachronistic when we look in prior to the cross. This this power of God uh, magnifying His wisdom by doing what only God can do in a way that only God can do it to execute judgment on the wisdom of men and save His people. The cross of Christ is the premier testimony. It's the chief of them all, the supreme illustration of God doing this. And it is the final consummate climactic testimony to this principle of God doing what only God can do in a way that only God can do it to judge the wisdom of men and save His people. But we also know that the end goal of all of history is the glory of God to the salvation of sinners that all history is redemptive history, and therefore all history finds its terminus in the cross of Jesus Christ. Every act of God moving along redemptive history is simply following the same principle that we would come to know as the power of the cross. It all, all finds its climax there. And therefore we could say the method of God from the very beginning was the way or the power of the cross. God magnifying His wisdom by doing what only God can do in a way only God can do it to execute judgment on the wisdom of men and save His people. Now we can group all of history into three categories. And they all show this principle, the power of the cross in God's works. There's the the, the time of history approaching the cross. There's the power of the cross attending the cross itself, the actual event of the crucifixion. But then there's also the period of history after the cross where God still works according to the same principle. That's going to bring us back to Paul's topic here, the preaching of it. It all follows the same principle though. Now for the remainder of our time, I just want to just show you this in the time of history that we would say approaching the cross. Redemptive history before the crucifixion of Christ. I want, to, I want you to just see this is how God works. This is what He does. God magnifies His wisdom by doing what only God can do in a way that only God can do it. Executing judgment on the wisdom of men and saving His people. Now, the period approaching the cross begins 
obviously in the Garden of Eden. Everything after the fall of man into sin is aimed at the cross. When Adam sinned, God's crosshairs moved to Calvary. That was the goal. From that point, moving toward the cross. Historically speaking, of course we know this was God's plan from eternity. But historically speaking, everything from there is aimed toward the cross. Since the fall, God has worked to bring about man's redemption, intentionally working in ways contrary to human wisdom. That would be man's instincts, man's natural inclinations. God works intentionally contrary to that just to show off His wisdom, to magnify His wisdom. In so doing, God glorifies His own wisdom, renders judgment upon human wisdom, and brings salvation to His people. Now, if I asked you where where is the first sermon on the cross, hopefully you would say Genesis 3.15 is the first sermon The first proclamation of the cross of Christ. God preaching says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We know the consummate seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. The bruising of the heel of Christ is his crucifixion and death. The crushing of the head of Satan is also the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So God says here, in a way, completely incomprehensible and unimaginable to the minds of men. You could have asked Adam and Eve, how do you think he's going to do this? They would have, I, I, Eve probably thought, well, I'm going to have a baby pretty soon. I'll have another one before long. They could have never dreamed that this was what was going to happen. In a way, incomprehensible and unimaginable to the minds of men, God says, I will send my son, wrapped in human flesh, the true seed of a true woman, and yet the son of God. And he's going to suffer a great blow against his flesh, but he will also render the death blow to Satan and his kingdom, this serpent who has entered into my garden. At the cross... In the death of Christ or the bruising of His heel, what happened? Our sins were judged. Christ's, the bruising of Christ's heel was the judgment of our sins. And yet at the cross in the death of Christ, that blow that wounded the heel of Christ is the very blow which crushes the head of the serpent, which destroys the works of the devil. Think about the flood. God judges the whole world with water. But what does the text say? Genesis seven seventeen. The waters increased and bore up the ark. Verse 18. The ark floated on the face of the waters. The very waters which destroyed sinners, the very waters which filled up the lungs of mommies and daddies and boys and girls, destroying them and wiping them off of the face of the planet, that was the water which bore up the ark of the salvation of Noah and his family. We know the ark is a picture or a type of Christ. The ark, the wood, was the barrier between the judgment of God on the outside and God's people on the inside. It was the ark that took the beating of the billows, wave upon wave, smashing upon the ark, and yet that same water lifting up and protecting Noah and his family inside the ark. God judges and yet saves in the same act, in the same 
in a way that we would never have comprehended. We could have never imagined this in order to magnify His wisdom. I thought of one last night as we were going over this in family worship. Think of of the Exodus Uh, in Egypt. Well, the, the... the same act that rendered the final judgment upon the Egyptians, the death of the firstborn, was the deliverance of God's people. Then they come to the Red Sea. How are we going to get across? Well, you ask people, how are we going to get across? We'll build a bridge. That'd take too long. It's too far. Uh, build some boats. We're going to need a lot of boats. It's going to take too long. They're coming right here. God says, I'll just part the water. You walk across on dry land. Okay, that's great. Perfect. Salvation. Walk across on dry land. But the Egyptians, they're going to come after us. They're just going to come right back across. That same place where I parted the water, I'll also bring that water back and judge them and destroy them in that same act. This is how God works. We would have never comprehended this. When you begin to trace the lineage of Christ, the bloodline which would culminate in the blood of His cross, you see God working in ways that vanquish human wisdom. That's someone's keys. God calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, promises to him a child in his old age. He brings forth Isaac from Sarah while Hagar and Ishmael are standing here watching. Esau and Reuben and Zerah, they're all firstborn sons. Men, we glory in our firstborn sons. I'll give them the... The birthright, I'll give him the inheritance, I'll give him the blessing. The firstborn, God says, I'll take Jacob, Judah, and Perez. A harlot from Jericho gives birth to Boaz. Boaz marries a descendant of one of Lot's daughters. She gives birth, that's Ruth by the way, she gives birth to Obed. Obed's youngest and least likely grandson is King David. Solomon is born to Bathsheba. The Holy Spirit refers to her as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And on down the line we go. In the lineage approaching Christ, God is just destroying human wisdom. How would you do this? God says, I'll do it this way. Every time. On down the line we go. When Christ comes into the world, we see God acting according to the same principle. The angel comes to Mary an unknown and yet godly young lady, and says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? This this doesn't work in our minds. How can this be possible? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. God does not come rending the heavens. He comes, He sends His Son in the womb of a virgin, a young girl. And then there's the incarnation itself. Who would have ever dreamed that the nature in which man sinned could be joined to the nature against which the sin was committed. A human nature and a divine nature joined together in one person. Who would have ever thought of that? The only answer is infinite wisdom contrived this plan. It baffles all of our minds. 
infinite wisdom assumed the sanctified substance of Mary in the womb of the virgin and was constituted the God-man. Jesus, who is the Christ. We'll see that later. He is wisdom from God. The wisdom of God had come to triumph over the wisdom of men in the womb of this young girl. But he's, he's not born into a palace. He's laid in a manger. What, what is that doing? He's, he's rendering judgment upon all of the pomp and circumstance in which men glory. Men glory in their houses and their, their, their fine estate. God judges it. He puts his son in a manger. He's raised in an obscure village in the home of a carpenter and renders a judgment against all of our chest-thumping about our heritage and where we're from and my hometown is this and my history is this and Jesus wipes it all clean, renders it foolish. That which you glory in, foolish. He enters into His ministry with no home of His own in need of regular provision from a group of women who tagged along. The light had come into the world and it was a judgment. Every act of God the Son entering the world, every act of His ministry was judgment upon judgment upon judgment. His lowest state, a judgment upon materialism and sensuality. But that same humiliation was that which brought Him down to sinners, to walk with sinners. His perfect life was a judgment upon hypocrisy and moralism. But it's that same perfect life which when imputed to us gives us a righteous standing before God through faith in Him. His teaching was simple and earthy and authoritative. His teaching was a judgment upon the traditions of men. And yet, He alone had the words of eternal life for thirsty souls. He said things like, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all manner of evil against you falsely on my account. That doesn't make any sense to the minds of men. That's the complete opposite. He says, when that happens, drop your shoulders and hang your head. No, he says, rejoice and be glad. The very opposite of the way men think. He said, whoever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever humbles himself like a child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When Peter tried to stand against his sufferings and death, he said, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, you're still thinking like men. Because men can't comprehend this. How is it that you can suffer and die and still be the Messiah? The minds of men could never have imagined a scheme in which the Son of God in human flesh could be arrested, tried, beaten, and crucified, and in all of that, triumph over His enemies. We could have never dreamed of it. Why not? Because these are the things of God. This is how God works. Not the way we work. How God works. Why does He work this way? Again, to display His wisdom. God's aim is to glorify Himself and to glorify especially His wisdom. It is the power of the cross to display God's wisdom. In verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 1, Christ, the power of God 
and the wisdom of God. Well, the power of the cross is the power of God, but Christ crucified is also the power of God and the wisdom of God. The wisdom, power, and goodness of God are all manifested, magnified, and glorified in the cross of Christ. He says, again, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In other words, by this means, God nullifies the wisdom of the world. All of the value systems of men turn to dust in the presence of the cross of Christ. All of them. This is the power of the cross. God, magnifying His wisdom by doing what only God can do in a way that only God can do it, executing judgment on the wisdom of men and saving His people. Next week we'll go in to look at the cross in particular. But for now, we need to understand that from the womb and from the world, we have all imbibed the wisdom of the world. By nature, from birth, we are prideful like the Corinthians. We will do almost whatever it takes to exalt ourselves, advance ourselves, elevate ourselves, even over our brothers and sisters. Jealousy and selfish ambition are our natural tendencies. And then we come into the world and through psychology and government discipleship and a mixture of those two, we, most of us have been brought up in a bubble that is utterly self-centered and man-centered. I, I, this week I just Googled some of those old posters that used to hang in the, 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 the guidance counselor's room in, in schools. Pure humanistic trash. It's all in you. It's all in you. You can do it. You can, I mean, it's just, but that's the way we're raised. Man, you can do it. You've got it inside of you. We can figure this out. We'll get this right. That's the bubble that most of us have been raised in. And anything and everything that we see, we will pick it up and use it like a stick to pole vault ourselves up and over others, higher and higher in our own minds or in the esteem of others. And that's what the Corinthians were doing with their favorite preachers, gifts from God, and yet they grabbed it and said, I'll use this against my brothers and sisters. Even good things had become weapons for self-promotion. And Paul comes in and he takes them back to the cross. And he takes them back to its power. Not merely saying, have not your sins been washed by the blood of the Lamb. No, he brings them back to this idea that the cross is an act of judgment. God in the cross has already rendered all of those ways of thinking nothing. And they had forgotten that. Paul's reminding them that to come under the power of the cross is to enter into a new way of thinking where God in Christ has altogether vanquished all the value systems of the whole human race. He's brought them to nothing. He's shown their folly. He's shown their impotence. Powerlessness. And, and the Christian, is what Paul's getting at, the Christian is a person who in their heart and in their life and in their thinking joins Christ as a walking, talking, living, breathing condemnation of everything that the world values. We live as walking condemnation 
against the world around us and their wisdom. Because we don't, we don't subscribe to their values. We don't follow their methods. Or at least that should be the case. That should be true. Those who've seen Jesus Christ and who've been to the cross, you understand, or that who do understand what God was doing there, you know that it's true. You know everything the world has to offer. All of its wisdom, all of its values. It's worthless. It's useless. The Christian can say with Paul in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. This is his, this is his worldview. The world's dead to me. I'm dead to the world. Because he's seen this new value system. A Christian can say that. Some of you, you know that. You recognize that. Others of you, you've not yet seen Jesus Christ. You've not looked. I believe that it's honest to say Christ has been, not perfectly, not to any great worldly standard or churchly standard, but Christ has been portrayed from this pulpit as crucified. Over and over and over and over and over, and some of you still will not look at Him. You won't. You won't look. Some of you won't even look in the direction of the pulpit. Some of you young people, your eyes are too full of what the world has to offer. Listen, whatever it is, let me go ahead and tell you, I'm not, I'm not very old. But I'm, I'm older than you if you're younger than me. Right? I've, I've tried it. I've seen it. It doesn't get anywhere. It doesn't mean anything. It's nothing. Everything the world dangles in front of you. Try this, try that, try this. Do this, do this thing. It, it, it. Listen, in, for the, the older ones in here... More than likely, in about 40 years, most of us are not going to be here. It doesn't mean anything. All of the world's wisdom, everything that they say, here's how you do it. Here's how you advance. Here's how you move up. Here's how you receive joy and pleasure, young people. It won't do it. God's already shown that all of that is foolish. The only thing that matters in the history of the human race is that Jesus Christ died on the cross. That's all that matters. But your, your eyes are too full. Some of you parents, your eyes are too full of what the world has to offer you that you can't see that your children's eyes are full because you're, you're leading them in the same direction. You're blinded by the same things. They, they will follow us. They learn after us. Some of your eyes are so full of what the world has to offer your children that you let your guard down and let them chase it. And you think you'll keep a leash on them. I'll keep a leash back here. Let them, let them chase some things of the world. I'll give them a little slack here and there. I'll pull them back when it gets... No, you won't. You, you, won't, you won't do it. It won't work. It can't work. You drift into this thinking that what Christ has put to open shame in His cross, all of the wisdom of the world, you think, well, maybe now it's not quite so shameful. 
Maybe it's not quite as bad as he made it out to be or made it out to sound, and it really is. I would repeat Paul's question to those of you who profess to know Christ. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Either He has or He hasn't. But I also understand what is to me a terrifying reality. It makes me sad that there are not more of you who are terrified of this reality. What Paul also says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Some of you right now, the reason all of this is foolishness, the reason you can't get your mind here, you don't understand what the deal is, is because you are headed for hell. That's your direction. You are perishing. You're on that direction. And you cannot lower the temperature of hell by ignoring the preacher. That's not going to work. You just want to get quickly back to your conversations about the week and work and school and thoughts about hobbies and friends and favorite pastimes and all these fleeting things that, that are going to fill up our, our measly 70 or 80, or year, 80 years. But you won't think about eternity. You won't examine your own soul. Some of you are probably still trying to figure out if this is a good sermon or not. Rather than recognizing that I'm talking to you. We, we hear, do we not hear a lot of good sermons that other people really need to hear? I don't preach sermons that other people need to hear. I preach sermons that we need to hear that I need to hear. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The only, the only thing that there is to do is to call out to God and say, have mercy on me. Maybe you've never recognized, you've never come to that realization, uh-oh, I'm going to hell. If I die today, I'm going to hell. Maybe you've never thought about that. If you don't have Christ, that's the truth. Examine yourselves. Be serious about it. Think, do I understand, do I cherish this concept of Christ crucified or is it all just talk? Is it, is it religious stuff that is said over and over but really there's no draw in it for me? Examine yourself as we pray. In the breaking of the bread, we are to be reminded of Christ's body broken. Christ's words, Christ says, this is my body for you. There is a Christ for sinners, given for sinners. And in the breaking of the body of Christ, as we just heard, we, we don't see a failure. We see a victory, a triumph. This is what He came to do. So as the elements are passed, would you go to Him, make a, a confession of your own sins, whatever the Lord might bring to your heart, and make a, a quick move to the cross of Christ where there is forgiveness for sins, and then we'll come to the Lord's table together.